I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. That sounded pretty weak. There's a better one. (laughs) We're going to need you to drop in a clean, scared noise. Mother. (laughs) Okay. Next on our outline, I have present case. Mm -hmm. So if I set this here, y'all, does that make a noise in the microphone? Well, that noise you just made made a noise. Mm -hmm. Okay. I need an easel or something like here to like hold multiple notes. (sighs) Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's almost like my closet wasn't built for like really easy, quick podcast a recording setup. studio. Mm-hmm. You need a music like stand. That. I do need a music stand. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like it needs to telescope out of the wall between Carl's shirts because that's where my laptop is set up right now. I wonder if they make human liars like they make these little contraptions that attach to instruments so you can attach a flip photo of music. Uh-huh. wonder if they make them for humans so that you can like have it on your arm or. Did you call it a liar? Yeah, L-Y-R-E. Oh. Band nerd 101. <laughs> well, I was not in the band. I'm sorry. Our school did not have a band. Okay. Um, When you said, I wonder if they make human liars, I was like, uh, yep. yeah. <laughs> mm, yes, for sure. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, yes, they mm-hmm. make human liars. So, JJ, mm-hmm. I have a case for you. Oh, goody. As always, the case that we're going to go over today is presented anonymously. That means that the veterinarian, the animal, the owner are all anonymous. It's not specific to any one area of the country. It's not specific to any genders of veterinarians or animals. I think we generally tend to use she (laughs) as the pronoun, even though that might not be the case in real life. And it may change throughout the (laughs) process. Right. We might forget We probably should just say the veterinarian and the animal. Okay, I'm going to try that and see how it goes. Okay. You know what? Because we're just going to wing it. But anyway. So this veterinarian is writing about a case. A 13-year-old male castrated domestic short hair cat. I just said we weren't going to gender the animal. And I did. You know what? It's part of the signalment. I feel like there are plenty of 13-year-old male castrated domestic short hair cats. That's mm-hmm. not recognizable feature. So we're not going to... Yeah, we didn't say what color. Was he orange or black and white? Or I'm going to hide that information to protect his identity, JJ. Okay. Okay. Using the witness protection. Yes. Sunglasses and a mustache. Blur his image. And also one of those French hats. Oh, we've made him a A beret. A beret. Oh, he's a French, sir. French. French, French, sir. Okay. This kitty. Mm-hmm. This kitty presented for routine dental cleaning. Yay. He did. Mucho now, for dental. Now, the morning of his surgery, uh, the owner answered some basic questions about how he's been doing. The owner says, great, eating fine, drinking fine. The owner has not noticed any problems at home. Then the veterinarian does a preoperative examination, which we should always do. Mm-hmm. The veterinarian notices, although the cat isn't thin, the cat has lost weight, about a pound and a half since the previous year. That's a lot for a cat. That's a lot for a cat. So the veterinarian is going to perform some preoperative lab work. Mm -hmm. So the veterinarian is looking at this kitty, feeling good at home, but seeing some weight loss, and she's going to 
add a test to the typical blood work that would be performed preoperatively. And that is a thyroid test. So when the lab work comes back, the kitty cat has a relatively normal blood count. The kitty cat has a relatively normal chemistry profile, but the kitty cat has an elevated total T4. Um, and in this case, it was 13 and a half. That's quite high. It's pretty exciting. So the veterinarian then is able to for sure diagnose hyperthyroidism in that kitty cat. Total T4 is elevated, 13. We've got clinical signs consistent with hyperthyroidism. That kitty is hyperthyroid. This particular kitty cat had their dental procedure postponed. The veterinarian started some methamazole, sent the kitty cat home with instructions to recheck in a month. And in a month, the kitty cat had maintained its weight. The total thyroid concentration was at that time normal. And so then the veterinarian proceeded to place the cat under anesthesia for dentistry. So the focus of our episode today is going to be about the importance of and maybe even the pros and cons of performing routine wellness blood work and preoperative blood work to screen patients. So in this particular case, the cat had hyperthyroidism, but... I've certainly diagnosed my share of bizarre things on routine lab work. Um, So this is where the owner has not perceived any abnormalities with the pets. Since pets can't talk to us, we don't know if they felt symptomatic or not, but we'll say that the Mm -hmm. owner did not perceive a problem. I have seen dogs and cats with leukemia, with lymphoma, with diabetes, all diagnosed when the owner had absolutely no idea that something bad was going on. Just this, these were accidentally found. And in some of those cases, if we were, you know, about to do a major procedure or something like that, knowing that information is really essential. And it might cause us to, like with the hyperthyroid cat, go ahead and postpone an elective procedure completely to be extra safe. Or it might cause us to make some major changes about how we're going to approach anesthesia in those patients or even how we're going to treat them. So kitty cats with kidney disease is another one. Um, Older kitty cats. Mm -hmm. That's fairly common that you don't necessarily will see any signs other than maybe some weight loss that might be perceived as just, oh, the cat's getting old. So Mm -hmm. it's just changing because of that. And turns out, no, there's something else going on. Could be more than one thing. That's exactly right. Sometimes owners don't perceive things like weight loss, you know, because they see the patient every day. It's hard. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I have to weigh my own animals on a routine basis. I'll say weight changes that are not quite a full pound. It's hard for me to tell mm-hmm. uh, on like your, mm-hmm. well, we'll say a cat that's supposed to weigh 10 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> a regular, you know, sized cat. You're not going to really perceive weight loss until it's pretty significant, uh, especially if the kitty was, Mm -hmm. you know, chunky to begin with, like my cats. Or fluffy. Hair will hide a lot. Oh, yeah, exactly. And dogs, Mm -hmm. too. So you think like, oh, this animal is in fine body condition until you put your hands on them. And then you're like, what? That's the important part. Mm -hmm. I know with my dog with Snuffy, I'm always like feeling, okay, can I feel her ribs too easily? All right, might need to increase her deers and taters a little. But <laughs> it's not to, to just explain what that means. Uh, yeah. <laughs> her dog Snuffy eats a special diet. <laughs> yes, it's venison and potato, but at our house it's deers and taters because we're weird. But, yeah. So, okay, so we were talking about different things that we've diagnosed or seen diagnosed on routine lab work. 
kidney disease, great one to add to the list because mm-hmm. it's a quiet disease. Sometimes liver disease. Yeah, I um, I actually did once see a patient trying to not, again, we're supposed to keep this anonymous mm-hmm. anyway, <laughs> or as close as possible. But I diagnosed a, a patient with a copper storage disease based on, well, I mean, I had to do additional testing. But what tipped us off that there was a problem was just routine lab work. And we saw liver enzyme changes that were bizarre and not anticipated with uh, with the presentation of the pet. So mm-hmm. luckily that owner allowed me to dig into what was going on. They had the the resources to be able to work up the case, and we ended up getting a diagnosis, which was really exciting. Mm-hmm. Like we took that one all the way to the biopsy stage, and and got a got a for sure diagnosis, which yeah, is always really rewarding. rewarding. Yep, yeah. <laughs> for the veterinarian and the pet owner alike. Yes, you get an answer. Way, there's no guessing exactly. Right, <laughs> trying to appropriately, uh, you know, treat things based on guessing is hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's hard. And it's hard anyway. too sometimes to just kind of guess what type of diagnostics you want to do just because, you know, like typically with pre-anesthetic blood work, we don't necessarily jump for the full panels of everything. I mean, you'll get a CBC and sometimes a um, smaller chemistry panel. The CBC is going to check for um, your red count, white count, and platelet count. So it can rule out things like anemia infection also with your chemistry you're going to look at things like your liver function kidney function a little bit of endocrine function uh, protein levels and that kind of gives you an overall view of what the body's doing sometimes we'll see platelet abnormalities on the cbc but is that always accurate no sometimes in when you're drawing the blood sample if it's a difficult stick or if the patient's being extra wiggly the longer you're in a vessel uh, the quicker the platelets are going to have time to come and try to plug the hole that you've made in the vessel so you can get platelet clumping and uh, that can show up as a low platelet count on a CBC machine um, or it may actually count because they kind of clump together and, and make a bigger particle. So the CBC machine may think that it's a different type of cell and report it back abnormal. How I know you worked at a commercial mm-hmm. lab before and also you, I mean, have, you know, been the, the blood work guru at many clinics too, but the CBC machine um you mentioned it can sometimes misread cells that are unusually sized or cells that are clumped mm-hmm. together. Am I remembering correctly that when the machine is working, it picks a cell up and shines light through it to determine right. the type? Yeah, it it's shines a, almost kind of looks like a laser through it. Mm-hmm. And it puts it in categories based on size and sometimes uh, I think also is density the right word. Um, yeah. So it can kind of guess what type of cell it is and on more most normal um blood samples it's going to be accurate but anytime you have anything abnormal or if you question anything um it's always good to do a blood smear and check it's really easy to rule out platelet clumping because on a blood smear it's going to look like i mean as long as you know what a platelet looks like it looks like a, a wad of them got together and are having a party so and they've just kind of melted together, and now they are one. And uh, so it's easy to rule that out. And you can rule out things like, um, what's another good example? 
do you mean of like an artifact or a um, disease process? Mm, artifact. Um, I mean, sometimes you have well, like immature cells that mm-hmm. can masquerade as other things um, that you can notice on on the slide. But you can also pick up things like that the machine can't tell you, like uh, morphology of the red blood cells, which just means you know are they are they, are they different shapes or are they different colors? Um, do they have any type of blood parasite in them or um, is there uh, say reticulocytes going on? Usually, what are reticulocytes? You, oh God, you know, make me define that one. Oh, sorry. Um, I thought that no, it was no. going to be a rhetorical question. <laughs> they're just, they're immature red blood cells. Right. So basically, if you have an anemia, that's a way you can tell if it's regenerative or not, is if the patient is producing reticulocytes. It just means they're baby red blood cells. But one of the ways that in yeah. school they taught us without doing a reticulocyte count or something, if you're looking at a slide, to tell you that you should do a reticulocyte count is if you're seeing a lot of polychromatophils, which are basically super huge red blood cells that look a little slightly different. They stain a different color, almost kind of more of a lavendery purple, whereas the red blood cells are kind of more of a, I guess, a reddish purple. I don't know. Staining can be different depending on what you're using, but that's just kind of how I learned it. So if you're a technician and you're checking red blood cells, mirrors for either educational purposes or to, you know, just double check your machine, which you should always do. If you see those, it wouldn't be a bad idea to mention, hey, doctor, can we maybe do do you think we should do a reticulocyte count just because we're seeing some of these and it may, you know, flag it. But that's just my lab nerd wonder or, or meandering. <laughs> I think that that's really important information. Absolutely. I've seen uh, CBC machines miscount lymphoma cells before. And so I think doing a blood smear is really important part of a CBC. I mean, anytime anything mm-hmm. looks weird, you know, and now uh, depending on the type of in-house lab machine you have. The brand. Um, I don't want to say the. <laughs> Right. I mean, I don't know. Some we'll just say some newer uh, machines will give a type of graph mm-hmm. that will help you. You can basically look at the graph and the distribution of types of cells to determine whether this is like expected. The readouts are as expected or whether it looks bizarre. And if it looks bizarre, mm-hmm. you need to look at that because you might be seeing, you know, I mean, even neoplastic or which means cancerous uh, cells in there. So that's that's one way that you can um can tend to mm-hmm. check. But yeah, so if you're doing um if you're doing routine run of the mill lab work on a patient that seems healthy and all of a sudden you are seeing, gosh, the red blood cell count is very low. The white blood cell count is super high. Certain lines in the white blood cell count, like the lymphocytes, are very high. Or if you're seeing an unusual low platelet count that bears out when you do a blood smear. All of those things need to be checked out before we go doing surgery on that patient, before we place that patient under anesthesia, or even before we prescribe mm-hmm. some types of medications. So the other type of um, lab work test that uh, you mentioned earlier is a chemistry profile. So typically the chemistry profiles, you can have kind of, uh, I guess, tiers or Uh, You can have a smaller chemistry profile that just kind of hits the high points, which is going to look at kidney function, liver function, usually glucose, um, maybe electrolytes, uh, and usually a a protein. 
so if you have an older patient, a doctor may recommend having a, doing a more thorough chemistry, which would include more tests. Uh, so you might have like a 10 panel versus a 17 panel. Um, it just gives you more information. And there's some doctors that if it's a younger patient, they just look at strictly a total protein. I personally would feel like that would be inadequate, but because that doesn't tell you anything about kidney disease. Wait, you mean like they would like spin down a hematocrit tube and use a refractometer to do total right. protein without doing yeah, anything else? Yeah, they would else? look at um, Paxil and then a uh, total protein and let that suffice as their pre-anesthetic. I, I mean, mean it, it could give you some information, I guess, about kidney function, but... Yeah, I mean, it gives you some information. Is it a whole picture? No. And I think then it gets into potentially a what is the owner of the patient allowing you to do situation. Sometimes owners are financially limited um, and sometimes it's mild limitation and sometimes it's severe. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I think, gosh, that it's always tough, you know, as long as you have spoken with the owner and gotten some informed consent about the limitations of that sort of thing, And then you need to document that in the medical record. You know, Mm -hmm. I reviewed this with the owner. They declined lab work. This is what we settled on instead because of cost. I discussed with the owner that X, Y, and Z problems are not detectable with this, you know. And and then sometimes then you just have to go ahead and hope that everybody's on the same page. (laughs) Yeah, which, I mean, I think we're going to get into in a moment about, you know, the pros and cons of pre-anesthetic blood work in healthy animals. But, I mean, that's, for the chemistry, that's about the bare minimum, pretty much, and probably the cheapest. Yeah, time and supplies cost money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some A lot of times, I think pet owners sometimes think somehow mistakenly that the, you know, that the, the cost of lab work somehow goes directly into the pocket of the clinic. But that's like in all businesses, that's not true. The price to the consumer it does include some profit, but it also pays the employees. It keeps the lights on. It probably provides other supplies, <laughs> too, like paper towels. Mm-hmm. And it uh, pays part of the mortgage, and it pays for the actual supplies needed to run the test. And sometimes those supplies are expensive. Having made uh, orders for supplies for these blood machines, it was nothing to once every week or so. It'd be five, six, seven thousand mm-hmm. dollars just for to cover a couple of weeks, so depending on how you know busy your machine is. And that's just one of the machines that doesn't count. If your chemistry machine, if you're having to buy the clips, you're having to buy the um, cleaning supplies to do maintenance, and all those things mm-hmm. add up. You may not buy like a reagent kit for the CBC machine, but every month or every three months, but just that reagent kit alone is almost $1,000. So it adds up. So lab work, you know, lab work can be costly, but it's really, it provides a lot of good information. I'd say, Mm -hmm. you know, in a perfect world, my favorite thing is to run a complete blood count, a full chemistry profile that includes electrolytes and protein levels like albumin. And in an mm-hmm. older um, kitty cat patient, I do like to run a thyroid test because of just how prevalent 
thyroid diseases in cats over, say, 8 to 10 years old. And I like a urinalysis, too, because a urinalysis can give us so much mm-hmm. information. Similar to what we were discussing in the in the episode about whipworms, I think veterinarians often, especially associate veterinarians, come in and try not to rock the boat too much. You know, usually the clinic that you step into will have you know, a a set way that they have always done it, you know, (laughs) and, um, and so, you know, when you're new, new kid on the block, then it's uh, difficult to come in and say, I really insist on these tests, you know, that might uh, be something that the owner veterinarian or older, you know, colleague might not be used to. So, uh, we always want to be flexible, but at the same time present information about, you know, the usefulness of these tests. And that's one of the reasons I think having a medical director at every hospital is so important because the practice culture is different. The type of um, clientele that the practices serve is all different. Um, the purpose of the practice is different. You know, you're going to have a different standard operating procedure at a university teaching hospital than you are at a spay-neuter clinic. And you're going to have a different protocol Mm -hmm. at at a private specialty hospital than you would at a private uh, general practice. And you're probably going to see some differences between things like urban and rural rural areas. That doesn't mean that everybody's wrong or everybody's right, but that, you know, coming together, I think, and having a calm discussion between um, the veterinarians and technicians about, you know, what is our um, practice philosophy? What is our goal? What needs do we serve in the community? And we're going to use that to base our recommendation. And recommendation doesn't necessarily mean standard of care. Standard of care is like the minimum bar you have to rise to. Recommendation should be what is the best recommendation for the patient. And it might be that our standard operating procedure says we're going to recommend a full, comprehensive, minimum database, CBC, chemistry, urinalysis, thyroid test for patients that meet XYZ criteria, but that might be declinable by the owner. And then you have to decide, okay, what mm-hmm. what do we perceive to be our minimum standard of care? Are we going to allow x y and z other situation to happen what sorts of release statements do we want owners to sign if they insist on declining these tests yeah it's super important to make sure that the owners know what they're declining so um going over things that the lab work will give you the information lab will give you um even if they opt to do maybe a smaller panel you know at least you have some information so before medical procedures, those are the tests that I like to run. And it's it's really the same with wellness care, honestly. Um, I, I have been a veterinarian at many clinics who do different types of lab work for young animals versus old animals. I don't think that's a wrong thing to do, okay? But it's not my preference either. I haven't had such a strong preference to do something else that I've majorly rocked the boat, if that makes sense. So I think, you know, it's one of those situations (laughs) where, again, you have to look medically what is the best thing. If we're going to take the time to do lab work, shouldn't we take the time to get the maximum information? And when you really look at it, it's not that much more expensive to do a full panel, especially if you're utilizing a send out lab. Right. 
And we do try to, I mean, we're not as a, a profession out to try to milk money out of people. That's not, it's not the game we're trying to play. At the end of the day, we have to do and we have to recommend what's best for your animal. Yeah, we're not as a profession out to trap people into doing the maximum revenue possible. I mean, at right. least I am not. And I would hope that, I, I mean, I think that that's true of the vast majority of veterinarians, as always, in every profession. There are bad apples, right? In every single profession, right. there are bad apples. But most of the time, people are trying to do the right thing. It is it is interesting. Pet owners always ask, when does the lab work expire? Or how long is it, quote, good for? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's yeah, not that's a thing. A it doesn't have an expiration <laughs> date. It tells me what's happening with your pet today at, you know, 12.57 p.m. when we draw the sample. <laughs> that's all it tells me. Um so if that looks normal, then we can, you know, extrapolate pets normal, healthy. If the pet comes in the day of the procedure and weighs about the same and you haven't noticed any symptoms and on physical exam, nothing is upsetting, then most of the time we're able to go ahead and proceed. But sometimes um, we find abnormalities. And if we find an abnormality, here I go back up on my soapbox again, but if it's it's important enough to do lab work for and it's abnormal, that means you need to pay attention to what it is. If you're taking the time to do lab work, you also need to take the time to look at what those results are and like react based on them. So we don't want to just run lab work for the heck of running it, not pay attention to the abnormalities and forge on ahead blindly. We want to we want to stop and say, OK, how is this pet really doing? What are we most worried about based on these abnormalities? And does it make sense to proceed today? Does it make sense to cancel? Does it make sense to proceed but change how we're going to administer anesthesia or other things? And if the pet is found to have a disease process, then probably, you know, additional tests are going to be needed. Monitoring is going to be needed. So it, it doesn't there's not really a set time that, you know, lab work results are fresh for you. They're not, there's no best by date, like on a carton of milk. Mm -hmm. It depends on the individual pet. Exactly. Yeah. It depends. It depends. It depends. And I can understand why clients get frustrated by that answer, but that, that is the medical answer. Pets mm -hmm. and people are not um, dairy products. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. So, Chemistries will check your major organ functions, like your kidneys, liver. Uh, it'll check endocrine. It'll check um, protein levels and also electrolytes. Um, for kidneys, you're going to look at uh, your BUN and creatinine and your phosphorus levels. Um, probably the most important of those is going to be the creatinine because it kind of gives you a little bit more information. If you have, say, an elevated BUN, but your creatinine and phosphorus are normal, usually doesn't cause a whole lot of excitement. Um, well, but if you have... I, I would get excited about that, potentially. Depending on what... So, depends on the body condition of the patient. So, mm -hmm. patients that have low muscle mass, like elderly mm -hmm. cats and dogs, would be the number one. But also, if the patient has been emaciated, you know, uh, they haven't been getting groceries, you know, yeah. or... I was thinking more of, like, if it's a normal, healthy animal. Yeah. I've just... I'll, Several times seen like a slight elevation of BUN and, and everything like, eh? else is and fine. Like, mm. yeah. yeah. So because uh, creatinine is a byproduct of muscle metabolism, if you don't have a lot of muscle mass, you don't make enough creatinine for it to be elevated. So that's mm -hmm. an important sidebar uh, 
if the patient has an elevated urea nitrogen and a low body, uh, like a low body muscle mass, then you can't, you know, you need to keep kidney disease on your list. And then especially if the phosphorus is like creeping up there, then that, that pet has kidney disease and they mm-hmm. just don't have enough muscle mass. But so yeah. if the phosphorus is nice and normal and the creatinine is nice and normal and the pet is a normally muscled pet and the BUN is just mildly elevated, I don't get very excited about that. But what I would do is look at a few things. I would look at the urine concentration. That's why I think it's so important to catch a urine sample. I would look and see, is there protein in the urine? And I would do a fecal parasite test to make sure that they don't have any (laughs) uh, intestinal parasites because, um, you know, if the pet has had um, bleeding in the GI tract, um, that could falsely elevate the urea nitrogen. Well, not falsely, but it affects it. So any type of blood in the GI tract. So asking the owner if they've, if the pet's been having vomiting or diarrhea or anything like that, super important. But anyway, sidebar over, proceed. Liver values is where we were heading. ALT and ALKFOS, typically if there's a little bit of an elevation of ALKFOS, especially I think in in puppies can sometimes have elevated ALKFOS and it's not really that exciting. You're absolutely right. But ALT, if that's elevated, then it's a little bit more of a... Uh oh, and then you look at bilirubin as well. If they're all three, the trifecta, then you're you're going to have some alarm bells go off. Uh, electrolytes can let you know if there's a possible adrenal gland issues or uh, dehydration issues. Um, so that can kind of tell you what do I need to change my fluid rate uh, for the procedure, or do we need to postpone this and try to rule out Addison's disease, which would be adrenal issues. Your analysis is another one that you had mentioned that you like to look at, and that gives you a lot of information as well. It's another way of uh, looking at um, what proteins are doing, and that can lead you into different paths, like um, are the kidneys upset, or is that why we have a protein spilling, or um, if there are glucose in the urine, uh, why is that happening? Um you can also sometimes see other things in the urine when you look at the sediment that can lead you towards possible kidney issues, like uh, if you see some abnormal renal cells or some of the casts. Uh, if you see a lot of granular casts, sometimes that can tell you that the kidneys may be in trouble, but it's not showing up in lab work yet. What is it? The kidneys have to be in um, working at 20% function before it shows up in lab work? Um, So the figure that I learned in veterinary school was two-thirds of the nephrons had to be gone. So 66.66666% of kidney function has to be gone in order for urine nitrogen creatinine to begin to increase. Yeah, whereas you might could see some possible um, changes at least going on with the kidneys and urine before you get to that that level. Absolutely. So if you're seeing protein, low urine concentration, oh man, especially if it's a cat. Mm-hmm. If it's a cat with an inappropriately low urine concentration, even if the creatinine and urine nitrogen are normal, I start to get a, a little bit of a heart palpitation. Yep. You know, like, and so we're going to talk to the owner about that. We might look at doing an ultrasound of the abdomen to check out how the kidneys are looking. 
and we might do a few things there before we consider anesthesia. But if but if we do move to anesthesia, I'm going to want that kitty to come in, have an IV catheter, and be prehydrated with fluids before we go. I'm not going to use NSAIDs in that patient. And I'm going to monitor that blood pressure like a hawk while that patient is under anesthesia. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be way less tolerant of um, minor hypotensive episodes under anesthesia um, because I know that those kitties are going to be potentially more affected by it than a, than a healthier pet. Yes. So it would dramatically change how I would proceed if I had to proceed at all that day. So when you're doing a urinalysis, there's several different parts. You're going to do your dipstick, which is going to give you kind of an idea of like what the pH is. Um, the glucose will show up in that. Uh, it'll let you know if you have bilirubin in the urine and white cells in the urine. And some of them will give you a, a specific gravity, but the best way to check specific gravity is with a refractometer. You put a drop on the urine, you look at the refractometer, and it'll tell you what the specific gravity is. Also, to spin the urine down and do a sediment test, that's one of the most important parts, too, because that's going to You'll get, actually get to see the different cells, the cast, the crystals, if there's any cast or crystals. Most of the time you're going to see some cells, but um, you can also see things like bacteria, um, in some cases even a parasite. So, what you know, whether or not pre-anesthetic lab work or even wellness lab work should be performed in healthy patients is a huge debate. As, I mean, as surprising as that is for me to discover... <laughs> I can kind of, I mean, apparently a really huge debate. I can understand it a little bit, especially if, you know, if you've got this like one year old dog that seems absolutely healthy, nine times out of 10, it's going to be fine. And so you run that whole question of, am I wasting, you know, 75 to a hundred dollars of money running this lab work? It just seems like it's for nothing, but it's that, you know, 0.1% of the time, if it's your dog that has some sort of underlying issue and it was caught on lab work and we didn't proceed with the surgery or anesthetic procedure and it could have potentially killed that animal. I mean, I don't know how many times I've gone over anesthesia things with clients and they tell me, well, you know, so-and-so killed my dog last time I had an animal in for anesthesia how do I know that my animal's not going to die with you on this one? And I'm like, well, I don't have enough information. (laughs) I'm like, did that animal get pre-anesthetic blood work? Was there something that, I mean, it doesn't matter how many tests you do or how careful you are. Anesthesia is going to be slightly dangerous and there could be potential negative outcomes. But doing pre-anesthetic blood work is going to reduce that. So it's kind of a, Catch twenty two. I mean, I see it from both sides, but it, yeah. Well, I, I was even. I wasn't um, meaning even from an owner point of view. I meant amongst veterinarians and amongst human doctors. There are people that hotly debate the the need for pre anesthetic blood work or even wellness lab work. And the speculation was that people then are having potentially invasive other types of procedures or unnecessary anesthesia events and things like that chasing down the cause for the lab work abnormalities so some people have said see we don't need to be doing wellness lab work in pets but then people uh, other people argue um, 
Well, so people are a little bit different. Number one, people can generally tell you if they are feeling bad, whereas pets cannot. How many of the patients that owners perceive to be completely normal are in fact experiencing symptoms? There's absolutely no way to know. Um, But I can say that in my clinical experience, the number of times I've diagnosed something that was (laughs) like pretty obvious um, that would definitely create distress, the owners had perceived absolutely zero symptoms. I mean, it's a lot. uh, Very, very commonly. So if that had been a person who could have said, gosh, it like I'm having pain in my mouth, like I'm having mm-hmm. weird urine straining and mm-hmm. pain, you know, like or it's hard for me to poo, you know, and people would probably say something sooner. So other veterinarians are saying, well, because patients, our patients can't say whether they're truly having symptoms or not. We have to err on the side of getting more information. Um, so it's very interesting. If you go on uh, VIN, which is Veterinary Information Network, and and just do a search for, you know, should pre-anesthetic blood work be performed or should wellness lab work be performed, you will get a lot of really passionate stances. Which I find interesting, and I, I wonder if the, the, the veterinarians that are potentially against it have they ever experienced losing a patient because proper pre-anesthetic blood work was not done yeah because it only takes one to to really beat that home because i mean it's you know it's not it it affects the owners absolutely 100 percent, but it affects the veterinary staff too when they lose a patient i mean if you have any mistake or any Anything that even if you've done everything you could to make sure everything was safe and there's still a a negative outcome, you know, that's you don't forget that it haunts you. And so it's I just find it hard to hard to kind of see, see that perspective as to, you know, I don't know, because animals and people are so different. And most of the time I can't think of really any time where if there was something abnormal or that popped up on the the lab work that you know you investigate most of the time you're going to find that there's something going on even if it's minimal at the very least you just recheck it over a couple months and if it goes away then you recheck it again maybe in a year make sure it doesn't come back but a lot of times it was like a precursor to something and it rears back up again Maybe the kidneys were having a bad day and maybe something happened to compromise them that we don't know. Maybe they ate or drank something that um, the owners weren't aware of that put a little bit of a a hit on them. And I don't know uh, if my kidneys are having a bad day, I'd prefer not to have surgery yeah. that day. Yeah. Know and I, mean? um, <laughs> I agree with what you said about having had the experience of a patient having a bad outcome, whether that's passing away or the development of severe kidney disease after an anesthetic episode, whatever the case may be, having some sort of adverse event happen even one time to one of your patients does tend to dramatically skew you towards being more safe 
or at least it does me. I, mm-hmm. The more that I live, the more that I realize other people don't experience severe anxiety the way that I do. I tend to have a very low risk tolerance for literally every part of life, um, but especially about my patients. So just mm-hmm. um, just the number of of cases over my career, we were counting them up. We'll just say almost 15 different cases off the top of my head. I can think of that had a severe problem going on that was caught either by wellness lab work or pre-anesthetic lab work. And those are just the ones I remember. I feel certain that the number is way higher. And if you add in the number of patients with what we would consider to be some mild symptoms like weight loss, but nothing else, you know, then that number would be astronomical. So, you know, it, I think yeah. it depends on your risk tolerance. And it honestly, it depends, too, then on your outlook and what your goals are. Speaking to owners about what their goals are is super important. So just practically speaking, mm-hmm. and, you know, sometimes audience might not want to hear this, but some owners have different goals for their pets. Some owners come in and they want literally everything possible done. Some owners do not because they have ethical objections to that or just that's not the way that they were raised right it's it's quote just a dog or just a cat Mm -hmm. and some owners would in a perfect world do everything that they could financially but they we live in the real world and financial resources are not unlimited for many people so i do think you always have to take into account what the owner's goals are educate them about what the risks are and then ultimately it's the owner's decision about what's going to happen I think sometimes people forget that this pet is owned by a client and the Mm -hmm. client is responsible for making the ultimate decision. The veterinarian and veterinary technician's job is to provide the owner with as much information as possible to help them make that decision. But ultimately, it's the client's decision. Now, as a veterinarian, there are certain things that I won't do because I perceive them to be too risky. Every veterinarian is going to have different version of that, but it, that's what allows us to sleep at night. So you have to hit some sort of balance. But I, I would, <laughs> I personally would never place my pet under anesthesia without full lab work because <laughs> I've just, I've just seen so many times uh, things fly under the radar and then you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that anesthetic event or starting on that new medication for arthritis or whatever the case might be is the little push that makes the first domino fall in the pet has been stacking these dominoes up for a long time. Nobody knew. And then you hit the first one. You didn't check, you know, so I, I'm someone who would like to mm-hmm. check always. Yeah, I I just remembered, I guess I have similar anxiety tendencies, yeah, as we definitely. both know. High-functioning uh, anxiety, right? Exactly. This uh, particular doctor had a cat that was he was going to do a procedure on, and he was excited about doing the procedure because he was a young veterinarian and neglected to offer pre estate blood work to the client. Um, he forgot to. The day after uh, the procedure, the cat just wasn't really, it never really recovered super well. It wasn't really kind of rallying. It was really sedate still. And we had kept it on fluids and he checked lab work and all the kidney values were through the roof. I mean, it made him feel absolutely terrible. I mean, he, he told the clients, you know, you know, this was my mistake. I should have 
recommended the lab work and I failed to. And luckily the clients were kind of understanding. I remember like feeling absolutely horrible for probably the next month about that whole case because, I mean, in my mind, I also felt guilty because I felt like I should have reminded him to make that offer. It didn't even cross my mind, but you can best believe it does now. You, you live and you learn. <laughs> Part of the reason for standard operating procedures and checklists, right? Because that, mm-hmm. that can happen Absolutely. to anyone, anywhere, anytime. If it's your policy, I don't like the word policy. If it's your habit, if your recommendation is to run lab work, that doesn't always mean that it's going to get done. You have to you have to make sure because clinical practice is busy. Mm-hmm. We see lots of patients in a day. Uh, I mean, it's just so busy sometimes. Uh, and you, the human brain can't remember everything. We're not perfect. But you know what is perfect? A checklist. You literally... For every patient, just go down a checklist. Mm -hmm. There's this book. I don't remember what the name of it is. I think I've told you about it before. The airplane checklist book. I don't remember the name of the book. But so it's basically presenting research about the importance of checklists and how checklists revolutionized the airline industry. Like um, maybe not commercial airlines. I think it was actually fighter jets. So in World War II, when they had to take like a, a bunch of farm boys and like teach them how to fly planes, they found that if you made a checklist, that it dramatically reduced the number of terrible crashes and deaths. And so that's how like the airplane checklist, I'm kind of summarizing based from memory here. Okay. But so anyway, that's kind of how like the airplane checklist situation became a thing. And then it went over into commercial aviation, too, because I, uh, I've i listened to another podcast, Hidden Brain, which is a great podcast, uh, that, that covered the subject, too. The more <laughs> expertise that you gain in a field and the more specialized you become, the more at risk you are for making little bitty mistakes in your setup, the more automatic it becomes, the more like you would think, oh, I've done this a million times. It's like clockwork. I, I wouldn't forget a really basic step. But actually, the more you do it, the more comfortable you become, the more you you are likely to make a mistake. And so that's why operating off of a checklist is so important. That's mm-hmm. why like um, have you after reading that book? <laughs> that is very true. Um, have you when I'm spaying a, an animal? I don't know if you notice but I go through the same checklist every time. So, and mm-hmm. I even say it out loud. I'm going to find the uterus now. Oh, there's the uterus. Okay. And I'm going to make sure mm-hmm. it's the uterus. That's right. <laughs> and I make sure, yeah, Hi, it uterus. bifurcates. Uterus bifurcates. Funny. And it's got an ovary on it. And it's the only <laughs> organ that has an ovary mm-hmm. and bifurcates. So we know it's the uterus. So I literally say, all right, I got my ovary. Uh, got my bifurcation. Mm-hmm. Here we go. And let's get started. And I say it every time. And then then I, I actually just go through the steps. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to now I'm tearing the suspensory ligament. Reading that book really changed mm-hmm. my life. Really, it did. So the I think it was the same book. They implemented checklists in human hospitals. And just by implementing the checklist, they dropped 
things like surgical complications from infection by huge amount. And all it was was a checklist about like basic crap, like washing your hands. You know, did you wash your hands before you interacted with the patient? That's right. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yes, I usually find whenever I'm gathering supplies for something, there's always one thing that I forget. Checklists, standard operating procedures and protocols. They save time. Mm-hmm. They avoid mistakes. Time, lives and money. Have you ever seen the show Barry Mm-mm. on HBO? Okay. <laughs> I had never even heard of it and Carl found it and it is the funniest show. I mean, it's very dark humor, but you know, that's right on my alley. It's got Bill Hader in it mm-hmm. from Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Did you know the guy that does the crazy job of the HUD impression? Yes, I like him. So he is an ex-Marine sniper who becomes a hitman, but he it's not what he wants to do. It's just like his main fear is it's the only thing that he's good at kind of a thing but then he accidentally Mm -hmm. joins an acting class it's a whole thing but anyway it's really funny in it the russian um (laughs) gangsters are the funniest it it is the funniest interaction because they're you know these bloodthirsty gangsters but they're constantly talking about self-help books and like they're on a (laughs) they're like on a conference call um (laughs) with other leaders like threatening one another but they're doing it in a really polite and direct way and they're talking about their favorite self help books and everything and then it like the camera zooms out and you see like the police and the fbi are listening into the phone call like as a recording and then he pushes pause and he's like and then they talk about several more self-help books for about 30 more minutes and then the call ends (laughs) i don't know it's just the funniest thing (laughs) carl and i were dying lord i think we still have some hbo go or something i'll have to check that one out it's a great show and reading self-help books really is <laughs> i mean the right one some of them are scary but yeah or cheesy anyway. you can do <laughs> it some Brene brown that'll be safe <laughs> when i was trying to research this topic i kind of ran up against a wall which is where what we were talking about earlier of there's a lot of opinion and no real way to come to a consensus about this i don't think partly because there's no there's no real way to prove <laughs> you know to prove a negative right so everything would be correlated to clinical outcomes that might need to be followed for years and years it's impossible to correlate certain complications to one anesthetic episode or to say what if about things so mm-hmm. yeah i guess it all just comes down to like you said whatever place of whatever clinic you're at come up with your own standard operating procedures and your own recommendations and there's still ways to back up why we do things do the best at communicating with a client and explain this is everything that we recommend is what we feel is best for your pet and if you choose to decline it right we may or may not be okay with that depending on on the the lab part but it kind of goes back to the importance of being able to have really straightforward and calm discussions with your clients with other veterinarians with other veterinary staff and to listen to people's concerns. So if you guys are on Mm -hmm. a different page, so if veterinarian A and veterinarian B are on a different page, then, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure. That's right. You need to have a sit down. 
you need to sit down and say, okay, let me outline my position. Let me outline yours. Let's talk about what our practice philosophy is, what the, um, you know, what the practice mission statement says, what type of recommendation can we settle on that's consistent across all pets that encompasses what we believe for sure. And there's going to be some compromise needed in that, but then that's Mm -hmm. where you go. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't individualize recommendations. That's always important. But having a baseline of this is what we in general recommend is just so important because it it gives continuity between Mm -hmm. what owners hear from technicians, from the reception desk, from the veterinarians. If an owner brings a pet in and is hearing a different story about things from all of those areas, then they start to have some concern about how no one knows what the hell is going on. Yeah, that's going to give them trust issues. And I can, I've worked at places that, you know, performed as you at a, as a united front and I've worked at places where they pretty much, you know, do whatever you feel is best. And the latter, oh, it really makes your job difficult because, I mean, I'm basing what I say on my own education and knowledge, but also on what the doctors are telling me as well, because I trust their education and their knowledge. And when they differ, but they've worked on the same pet, it makes things really, really difficult, especially if you were in the room at both times and they disagreed. A lot of times the tech staff staff will get caught up in the middle and we may or may not be able to totally explain and just have to be like, you really need to talk to your doctor about that. And I'm like, well, which one should I believe? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we might have our own opinions, but we're, we shouldn't we shouldn't necessarily say what they are because we're not the doctor so it's kind of a rock and a hard place but it's just going to be beneficial for everybody if you know if you're two different doctors and you disagree about something talk to each other before you know proceeding with a a client on something because good lord sorry that was a tangent (laughs) i was having flashbacks to the terrible times in the past (laughs) no that's fine Yeah, I think bottom line, um, well-managed practices create written protocols. They reevaluate them periodically and they base them on science and research rather than clinical sentiment. And they also have the ability to to sit down and and be able to have some sort of civil discussion about that. And I mean, if you're a veterinarian at a practice and you're unable to go to the management and present new information and get updated mm-hmm. consistent treatment recommendations together that that's an indication that this isn't a good professional relationship and the same is true of clients so if you are a veterinarian and you know you have thoroughly outlined your position about why things are recommended and the client is becoming belittling if they are using aggressive language and intimidation techniques and things like that. That's not evidence that you should be bullied into doing whatever the client mm-hmm. wants. That's evidence that you guys are not having a healthy client veterinary relationship and you probably need to terminate that relationship. <laughs> I know not all associates have that ability, but you know, if if the client's wishes and goals are that far mm-hmm. off from the medicine that you feel comfortable providing, then then it's really not a good fit. 
and that's gonna you're just setting yourself up to have a really mm-hmm. negative outcome facebook wars negative reviews absolutely uh, bad blood you know all of those things i feel like are directly related to miscommunication or poor communication not miscommunication but anger resentment all of those things i have never once in my career regretted standing firm about my decision to say no Mm -hmm. on something Mm -hmm. not one time but man are there times when i've caved in (laughs) and regretted it (laughs) when i was a young Mm -hmm. veterinarian there are some intimidating people it took a while for me to learn that I just had to say no and not be intimidated. Well, JJ, so we, we've talked about kind of our individual, we'll call them opinions. I mean, because that's, that's what they are. There's unfortunately mm-hmm. not straightforward research in this area and not likely to ever be because it's yeah. impossible to collect that data. And because it's such a polarizing opinion, apparently. How can this make people so upset? But it does. It, it made people pretty mad. I mean, I can understand coming from the standpoint of, you know, trying to maybe they're trying to save some money uh, for the client. But these are veterinarians taking it really personally. So that tells me something. There's something shaming involved in that. You know, maybe they're they just don't appreciate with somebody trying to tell them what they should and shouldn't do with their mm. practice. I mean, there's mm. I've definitely worked with some, some veterinarians that didn't appreciate that sort of thing like they they feel like they have their own moral compass and they're gonna follow it or maybe they it seemed to me that that potentially the most vocal opponents of routine lab work were those that already didn't recommend it you Mm -hmm. know like it it was like a we don't do this in our clinic and if I change my mind here, it means I've been not practicing the right way for a long yeah. time. May, and that might just be me. That's just me guessing. I think that there might be some ego involved, too. But, I mean, I absolutely across the board, it is okay if you've been practicing one way and you learn that, I mean, there's things that, you know, I used to do when I was a younger technician that I don't do anymore. Mm, yeah. So I think that about covers wellness lab work it's many confusing yeah not uh, not straightforward <laughs> at all i mean i feel like i for me it's straightforward but for for the general public and for all veterinarians not straightforward yeah <laughs> so mm. <laughs> highly opinion based topic so thank you everyone for listening yay yay we'll see you next time bye bye